Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back uh, with you. We are continuing our studies in Hosea. Gail says I have a, a kind of obsessive personality. Uh, uh, one of the things that are, how it manifests itself is that I have an obsession to finish things just at the right time. So on holidays, I have to finish the shampoo on the last day of the holiday. <laughs> I have to finish the tea bags last day of the holiday. Coffee last day of the holiday. And uh, it's a constant frustration when the timing is wrong. And uh, we didn't finish Hosea before we went away, so we're picking up those studies uh, this morning. And we come to the penultimate uh, chapter uh, in Hosea, Hosea chapter 13, what Derek Kinder calls the darkest chapter in all of the book of Hosea. So if you're uh, following uh, the reading, and I hope you are, would you turn to Hosea? Major prophets first, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea. And we come to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices, uh, kiss cats. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt you know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was uh, I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them. And like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will tear open uh, their breasts. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, give me a king and princes? I give you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where is your, or where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. 
Amen. And although God's word sometimes is is hard, uh, nevertheless, it's inspired by him and we accept it as his word. So as we come to our final studies in the book of Isaiah, I want you to cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, remember, Adam was told that he could eat of every tree, any tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for he was told that when he ate that tree, he would die. On the day that you eat from the fruit of that tree, God said you will die. Now you'll remember that uh, Eve took what she ought not to have taken, ate what she ought not to have eaten, and then passed it on to Adam. And uh, they ate, he ate that fruit, and he did not die. He lived actually for hundreds of years. Well, at least he didn't die physically, but he did die spiritually. On that very day that he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually, and ultimately he would die physically. One took place instantly. We have two deaths. One took place instantly, and the other took place eventually. Now, that's true of us as Adam's heirs. Uh, The Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of that nature inherited from Adam, we are dead spiritually. And because of that, ultimately, we will die physically. Now, what Hosea is telling us, that what is true of us individually can be true of us corporately and collectively. That sin brings death, not just to the individual, but to the uh, community and to the nation. That a once great and influential civilization can go into terminal decline from which it never recovers, You only have to look at the history uh, of our world to see that it is littered with the wrecks of once great civilizations. And often, like the individual, that death has two stages. That the nation or society dies spiritually, then ultimately that civilization is removed and destroyed and finally disappears without a trace. Now, this morning from this chapter, uh, we want to look at the death of Israel. And we want to see that two-stage death uh, that uh, happens to her. uh, And we want to apply it, uh, not just uh, corporately to, to the nation, but individually and ecclesiastically as well. So, notice with me three things. The nature of Ephraim's death, the reason for Ephraim's death, and the hope in Ephraim's death. So first of all, then, the nature of Ephraim's death. Look at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Ephraim was the younger son of Joseph, but he became the prominent tribe in northern Israel. You remember uh, the nation of Israel was divided into two, and uh, you had the ten tribes forming their own nation in the north, and you had two tribes remaining loyal to the house of David in the south, Judah and Benjamin. 
Well, the, the person who led the rebellion against the house of David was Jeroboam, and he was from uh, the tribe of Ephraim. And so Ephraim becomes the dominant, prominent tribe within Israel. Uh, we're told in uh, verse 1, he was exalted in Israel. And when you come to the minor prophets, you you almost have those terms used interchangeably that the prophets will speak of Ephraim and they'll speak of Israel. But in referring to Ephraim, they're referring to Israel. And in referring to Israel, they're referring to Ephraim. Ephraim was powerful uh, in her influence and she was the prominent tribe within Israel, exalted in Israel. And what had become of this great, once respected tribe and respected nation, verse 1, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. The moment uh, he abandoned the purity of the worship of Yahweh, we're told that Ephraim died. Now, of course, Ephraim still continued as a political entity long after she had died spiritually and she continued to sink into moral bankruptcy and spiritual degeneracy but she died the moment she entered into that relationship with Baal like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden though they continued to live physically spiritually the moment that they disobeyed they died and just like Adam that spiritual death would be uh, eventually followed up by physical death. Look at verse 3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Hosea piles metaphor upon metaphor, simile upon simile, to describe the evaporation of Israel or Ephraim's fortune. Fortunes, God says he will be like a mist or condensation that's dispelled by the rising of the sun or like husks of wheat that are blown uh, uh, from the farmer's yard by wind or like steam from a tumble dryer escaping through a ventilator in the wall. Ephraim would simply disappear in a puff of smoke. This once majestic kingdom of Solomon was going to be erased from the political map. Now we know from history that Hosea wasn't mistaken in that prediction. The armed might of the Assyrian army uh, was already knocking at the door even as Hosea preached. And within a few short years, Israel was completely destroyed and, uh, by Assyria and passed into political oblivion never to be uh, located or never to be recovered. In fact, if you look at the end of the chapter, uh, Hosea refers less obliquely to the devastation and destruction that would be inflicted by Assyria. Look at verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip uh, his treasury of every precious thing. This 
east wind coming from the desert was a metaphor for the Assyrian invasion. And in the wake of this military typhoon, all Israel's former prosperity is to be led waste. Ephraim would be like a bank vault stripped by thieves, and Israel would become like an oasis that has been parched uh, by uh, uh, drought. Samaria, this once uh, elegant uh, shop window for Ephraim's affluence, is going to be looted and destroy. Look at verse 16. Samaria shall bear, Samaria was the capital of northern Israel. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. They will fall by the sword. There's going to be no negotiated surrender. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground and pregnant women will be ripped open. The atrocities committed uh, against um, uh, Israel by the Assyrian invaders would be horrific. They were a a barbaric, uh, a ruthless people. They wouldn't even spare a fetus in the womb. The Geneva Convention obviously hadn't been written, but... uh, uh, Time and time again, they would have broken that convention if it had been in place. Ephraim would be no more. She would be eradicated from history and erased from the political map. But Hosea, you see, would have us understand that Israel died not at the Assyrian invasion or the day of her defeat. She died years before when she forsook her God, Yahweh, in favor of Baal. Verse 1, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. That's when the end was sealed. That's when the end came, when she died spiritually. Oh, she continued for years with every appearance of life, at times even prospering. But it was all an empty shell. She was dead on the inside. As the Lord says, she was like a a whitewashed sepulcher full of dead men's bones. Let's apply this then nationally. Be quite wrong of us to equate our nation with the nation of Israel. Israel was a theocracy ruled by God, uh, his They were his chosen people. And yet one has to acknowledge that this country and this province has been peculiarly blessed by God. We have seen reformation. We have experienced uh, revival. We have seen governments in the past appointing days for national repentance and prayer. When there was a mutiny in uh, India in 1857, uh, the British government uh, appointed a day of national repentance. They called the people of London to prayer and they uh, hired Crystal Palace and they invited Charles Spurgeon to address that vast congregation, the largest congregation assembled for any purpose uh, in, in history up to that point. Would they do it now? In my generation, every child had to memorize the Ten Commandments. And every, every school child could recite the Lord's Prayer. Could it be that nationally we have died? Well, we still have our national identity, but who's to say that's going to continue? And who's going to say that that will remain? 
that we become a nation of the past, that we die ultimately. And the reason for that death is because we have already died spiritually. Or we could apply this ecclesiastically to the church. Could it be that although many churches claim to be alive and to have the Holy Spirit, that they're actually dead? And they're simply putting programs uh, into place to prop up uh, a corpse. That was true of the church in Sardis, wasn't it? Jesus said to that church in Revelation Three, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead underneath all the activity and uh, all the events that were organized and all the mechanics. They were, they were dead. And Christ threatens that unless they wake up, that he himself will come and obliterate them. Or we could apply that individually. We, like Judas, may have a reputation of being very fine Christians. And underneath it, we're, we're dead. Judas went through all the motions of being a devoted disciple of Jesus. And yet he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But we need to understand that that rot set in, not when he negotiated with the, the high priests to, to betray him, but when he was pilfering money from the uh, treasury uh, of the disciples and when he objected to Mary's anointing of Jesus in that extravagant uh, act of devotion there was already uh, death there the nature of Ephraim's death the second thing I want you to notice is the reason for Ephraim's death Um, what we want to do now is carry out a spiritual autopsy, a post-mortem examination on Israel's corpse to determine the exact cause of death. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. Horrific words, but I want you to notice the the use of the first person uh, singular. I will come upon them. I will lurk beside them. I will attack them and rip them open. I will devour them. I will tear them apart. This terrible devastation that we read about uh, in the last verses, two verses of the chapter where the little ones are dashed to the ground and pregnant uh, women are ripped open is not simply inflicted by the advancing barbaric Assyrian troops. God says, I'm going to do it. I am responsible. The Assyrians are instruments of judgment in my hand. He often speaks of God in human terms as the uh, uh, writers of Scripture do, as a lover, as a husband, as a father. But what are we to make of verses 7 and 8 comparing God to wild beasts, to a pouncing lion to a stealthy leopard to a ferocious she-bear. So provoked has God become that these predators are the only fitting description of God's anger and judgment against Israel. This Assyrian invasion, this political annihilation, this military devastation 
uh, has its root in God and his moral justice. God is responsible. And as we look at this corpse, this once great nation that would be reduced to political oblivion, we uh, have to say that God himself identifies himself as the killer. I will fall upon them. I will devour them. So God is the the predator, but what is his motive? Let me suggest four to you. First of all, they had corrupted the worship of God. Look at verse 1. But he incurred guilt through Beal and died. That was the beginning of the end. This was the reason for uh, her uh, death, her flirtation and infatuation with this false fertility god Baal. And Hosea says the moment Ephraim uh, turned to uh, Baal, to this false god, the uh, national rot set in and Israel died and that infection spread and killed her off completely. Look at verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver. All of them work the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices, kiss cats. The sin had spread to such an extent that they offered their own children in sacrifice. And they kissed cats. Those metal images made uh, 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 in the fashion of um, uh, farm animals. They, they directed all their affection to that idol. They kissed cats. Yes, he says, God is the predator who will ultimately tear them to pieces. But you need to realize that you committed spiritual suicide. You slit your own throats by forsaking the true and living God in favor of Baal. It was then they died, spiritually speaking. Are we not an idolatrous people? We may not kiss calves or offer our children in sacrifice, but the eroticism and the economic security promised in the worship of Baal are every bit uh, uh, the fetiches of 21st century Britain. The, The whole equality agenda, the whole despising of absolute truth. We have surrendered ourselves in order that we might stand on the right side of history. Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. We're always uh, making uh, idols out of something, and the idol of the 21st century is the equality agenda. That the word of God is irrelevant and doesn't have anything to say as long as we're standing on the right side of history. They had corrupted the worship of God. They had forgotten the blessing of God. As we delve a little deeper into the motives for God's extermination of Israel, we find ingratitude as a cause. Ingratitude to God. Look at verses 4 to 6. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, 
You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Idolatry wasn't the whole problem. After all, the Assyrians were idolaters too, and God didn't seem to punish them. No, Israel's sin was compounded by a base ingratitude to God. The pagans didn't know any better. But God had spoken to Israel. They had stood at Sinai. They had received his law. You know no God beside me. And uh, besides me, there is no Savior. That they knew the, the, the salvation um, uh, 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 work of God in their lives and redeeming them and bringing them out of Egypt and protecting them and looking after them. And we're told it was I who knew you in the wilderness. That word know, um, the NIV translates it as care, means literally to pastor. It was I who pastored you in the wilderness. I provided for you in the wilderness. But when they had grazed as uh, animals, they became full and they were lifted up. Uh, they were filled and their heart was lifted up and they forgot me that the prosperity that God had given them, the blessing that God had bestowed upon them, actually uh, took their hearts away from God. They responded with spoiled complacency and they forgot the source of all the gifts that they had received. No people on earth had been blessed like the people of Israel, and had received the privileges like the people of Israel. She alone enjoyed a personal relationship with God, and yet they still insisted on offering human sacrifices and kissing calves. They had forgotten the blessing of God. You know, when you come to Romans 1, and that great uh, description of the, the wrath of God, one of the reasons why the wrath of God is may, being manifested is that they neither glorified God nor give thanks to Him. They were an ungrateful people. They spurned the blessings of God. There's an interesting little expression in Hebrews chapter 10 and, and verse 29. It talks about uh, the, the people who outraged the spirit of grace, insulted, the NIV says, the spirit of grace. That God bestows graciously on his people gift after gift, grace after grace. But they outraged the spirit of grace by their ingratitude. When they were filled and their heart was lifted up, they soon forgot me. So they corrupted the worship of God. They forgot the blessing of God. And thirdly, God's motive in destroying uh, Israel, they had rejected the protection of God. Look at verses 9 to 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where now? are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I give you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Israel was destroyed because they rejected God as her helper. You'll know from our studies in 
so far that northern Israel had a king after king uh, as one king killed the previous king as he hacked his way to the throne. And Israel had come to the conclusion that a change in king would restore her political fortunes and secure her international uh, reputation. But king after king came and disappeared. And the last king, King Hoshea, uh, was no more than a puppet king of Assyria. God gave them a king, but he was useless. And his wrath, he, he, uh, he gave them a king, he gave them a king in his anger, and he took that king away in his wrath. And so instead of seeking their security and their uh, strength in God, they sought it through political ends and through political means. And time after time, God took those kings away. But did they return to him? Did they uh, repent and seek him? Did they look to him for their security? Not a bit of it. They just replaced that king with a new king. So they corrupted the worship of God. They forgot the blessing of God. They rejected the protection of God. And they ignored the discipline of God. Look at verse 13. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the uh, opening of the womb. This is a, a strange metaphor that uh, Hosea employs. Uh, the picture here is of a woman in labor who's about to give birth to a child. And those labor pains are a, a warning that the birth is about to take place. But when the time comes for the delivery, the baby's in the breech position and will not come. And so presumably instead of those labor pains leading to life and joy, they lead to death and sorrow and the baby dies in the womb. Now, says Hosea, God has sent you all these difficulties, all these political insecurities and, and these threats uh, from uh, international um, quarters. He sent them all. These are the labor pains. And these labor pains are there that they might give birth to new life, to a new beginning, to a new birth. But he says, just like a fetus that hasn't the wit to rotate in the womb. Uh, you're spiritually uh, in the breach position. You don't listen. You don't see. You don't interpret those labor pains and the need for, for a new beginning with God and a new birth in God. The opportunity for a new beginning with God was right there, but Israel uh, couldn't come to the entrance of the, the, the womb. Indeed, indeed, Instead, she died. And this is why God was the predator and uh, destroyed Israel, because she corrupted the worship of God, because she forgot the blessing of God, because she rejected the protection of God, because she ignored the discipline of God, the labor pains. They didn't give way to life. Are we so different? We may, may not be guilty of idolatry in the sense that we have offered human sacrifices and kissed cats. But have we not put other things before him? Money, career, people, prospects, standing on the right side of history. Are we not guilty of idolatry, making idols out of these things? Have we not forgotten his blessings and treated him with contempt that we are happy to receive what he gives? 
but there's not one ounce of gratitude in our hearts for all the good things that he has lavished upon us. And like those nine lepers, we walk away and forget to return to express our thanks to him. Have we not rejected his protection that we run about like headless chickens or like hens on hot griddles trying to sort out our own difficulties and our own problems instead of turning to the one who can actually help? Have we not ignored his discipline that these things come into our lives, these difficulties like labor pains that we might uh, have a new beginning with God but we fail to take any notice of them? The nature of Ephraim's death, the reason for Ephraim's death, and the last thing I want you to notice is the hope in Ephraim's death. In all this darkness and despair, all this judgment and destruction, verse 14 gives us hope and light. Now, if you're using the SV, the SV translates this negatively. I think they're wrong in that. They're, they're, they're wrong in that because they... Well, the reason they translate it negatively is they think that a, a chapter that is so full of despair couldn't turn suddenly to hope and uh, expectation. So the ESV reads, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Derek Kidner says one of the features of Hosea is the sudden change in tone from the strongest threats to the uh, warmest of resolves. And I think the NIV and the authorized version are right in translating these positively. There's not a hint of negativity in the text. The interrogative isn't there. It's, it's positive. I sh shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? And you know that these are the very verses that, the very verse that uh, Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. That how he begins chapter 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried on the third day. He uh, was raised according to the scriptures and how that gives us hope of our resurrection. And uh, they're interpreted positively. And, and here, Hosea, in the midst of what Derek Kidner calls the, the darkest a prophecy of doom in all of Hosea. You have this chink of light that they had died, that they would be wiped away, wiped off the political map, that they would no longer be uh, God's people. But you have this glorious promise. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. Sheol is the, the place of death. It's the place where the dead Go, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. That this people who had offended God and, and turned against God and insulted God and kissed calves instead of God, that this people in all their 
rebellion. God hadn't forgotten them. God hadn't abandoned them. But pointing forward to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, one would come who would ransom them. One would come who would redeem them. One would pay the ransom to bring them back into the fold of the people of God and redeem them from sin and slavery. That, that Christ would come. And he would gather this rebellious people uh, back to himself. That he would rescue them from the power of death. Remember they had died and they eventually did die. They died spiritually, then they died um, physically. But, but God says through the prophet Hosea, this isn't the end. That there is one who is to come. Who will ransom them. And redeem them who will ransom all of his people. Who will uh, snatch them from the clutches of death. And bring them back uh, into the fold of the people of God once more. And that's why, why Paul picks up this language in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. He says, um, when the perishable put perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting that that their punishment um, and their their rebellion against god wasn't the end of the story but that god would come and ransom and redeem them and ransom and redeem all those who trust in Jesus. And the price of that redemption was the blood of his own son. And so God is angry with the sinner. God is angry with the unfaithfulness of his people. God is angry when his people kiss calves when they erect idols in their hearts. He's, he's angry with that kind of behavior. But he loves his people. And in love he sent his son into the world to suffer, to bleed and die that the price of redemption uh, might be paid and the ransom uh, might be handed over so that all of his people, the tribe of Ephraim, the descendants of Ephraim, and even to the Gentiles in the uttermost part of the world, uh, and the Jews who were still loyal to the house of David in Judah, that they all might be gathered as one people into the same family, ransom from death, destruction, and despair. And that's the great news of the gospel. That here, here in Hosea 13, in the darkest prophecy in the whole book of Hosea, there is this chink of light that God would come and ransom and redeem a people for himself, that he will buy them back from death and from the consequences of their sin. And I, I just want to ask you, uh, this prediction, this future prediction of uh, the ransom and the redemption, uh, has, has that affected you? Do you know what it is to be, to be 
incalculably valuable to God because you've been purchased by the blood of his own son, his precious blood, redeemed by his precious blood that makes you precious uh, in his side. Have you been brought into the family of God? That's, that's the challenge. God is angry with the sinner. Sin disturbs him. Sin unsettles him. Sin angers him. But in his love, his great love, his wonderful love, he has made provision for us that we might be ransomed from death, redeemed from Sheol, and brought back into the family of God. That's the great message of Hosea 13. Amen.